0: Back to the book of Philippians, where Chris uh, read for us our passage for this morning, Philippians chapter 3. There is a story that I have told so many times in my preaching career, uh, preaching time, that some of you have heard it before, and you might wonder, oh, not again, and think to yourself that. It's a story for me that has. Particular poignance. It's something I find tremendously challenging. And the story goes like this: in A little uh, midwestern town, in the United States, back in the perhaps the late 40s or early 50s. This little town didn't have much of the big city culture, not much of movie theaters or plays or anything like that. And one day, to this little town, a traveling orator came. And he put up flybills all over the town that that Saturday evening he would give a concert of oration. Uh, James Earl Jones, the uh, African-American actor, does something like this. He goes on a stage and he stands there and with his ability to speak and project his voice and use all the gifts of oratory that he has, he tells stories and he repeats speeches and maybe recites a part from a play or a... uh, Yeah play. We'll leave it there. And uh, this little country town sees these flybills, and they all come, one and all, because this is a chance for them to experience some big city culture, to see what happens in the, the big wide world out there. It's a hot summer evening, and he gets up, and for the better part of two hours, he wows the audience with his ability to speak and, and move them as he uses his, all his oratory uh, strengths and abilities. Finally, people are getting uncomfortable, and that creaking sound you all hear when the chairs get uncomfortable, I know when it's too long because everybody starts to move around in their chairs, or are getting uncomfortable, That happened to him? And he thought, you know, I've got to do something to finish off the evening on a real bang and, and really move this audience. And so he begins to take requests. And finally, from the very back of the room, an old man put his hand up, and, and, he's, and the, the artist said, sir... And he said, would you quote for me the 23rd Psalm? And the the orator stood there and he sort of looked around and he he said, the 23rd Psalm? That's the Bible. You don't read the Bible anymore. And the the crowd sort of looked at him and he said, "Uh, well, however, I will quote the 23rd Psalm if you will do something for me. And the old man said, What's that? And he said, when I'm finished quoting the 23rd Psalm, I want you to quote it. And the old man agreed and sat down. And the orator began, and he, he was going to give this his all. And he started off, and he used everything he had in his ability, and the whole crowd was wow. And they all politely clapped. And every chair creaked as they all sort of stretched to turn around, and the old preacher stood up. And with a voice that was cracked and broken from years of preaching for the Lord, he began to say in a voice not much above a whisper, the Lord is my shepherd. And he went through the whole psalm. He didn't have projection. He didn't have the arm movements. He didn't have all that other fancy stuff. And when he was finished. Like me right now, there were tears welling up in every eye in the room. Why? Why? The orator looked at the crowd, and he, in in what, 40 seconds? This old preacher in the corner had stolen his show. And he looked to somehow kind of wrap up and make sense of the moment. And he looked back, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I have reached your ears and your minds. But he has reached your heart. You see, I know the 23rd Psalm, but that man knows the Shepherd." Brothers and sisters in Christ, that story has particular power for me, not just because it's moving, which it is kind of, but as I stand in the pulpit or as I sit in my study and I open my Bible and I prepare sermons and I call people and do all of that stuff that pastors do, my great fear is which am I? Am I the old preacher in the back? I'm getting older. I'm covering that part quickly. Or am I just the orator that can stand up and say cool stuff? My question to all of us this morning is, which are you? Are you somebody sitting in a room full of Christians, a well-worn Bible, worn-out theology textbooks, you know, so much theology and so much truth, and it's all sitting up here in between your ears, but it's never gotten down here. Do you know the psalm or do you know the shepherd? And, of course, the even better answer is I know both the shepherd and the psalm, which should be good. We have in our text this morning this great passage of Scripture, and this Scripture was particularly powerful in my life many, many years ago as a young man who was trying desperately to live like the world and show up on Sunday and keep his family and parents and friends happy by being in church with his suit and tie and his King James Bible tucked under his arm and living wildly throughout the week. And a man named Jonathan Brower stood up in the pulpit and he preached a sermon from this text. And it's never left me, some of the words, even the way he said it, that I may know him. That's my question for us today. Years approximately 80, 61, and Paul is under house arrest in Rome, waiting his trial before Caesar. He received a financial gift from the church that he and Silas had founded in Macedonia, the city of Philippi, and you can read about it in Acts 16. And so he writes to thank them for their gift, and he uses this opportunity and this penmanship time he has to report on his circumstances, to encourage his readers to stand firm in the faith, to urge them to unity and Christ-like humility, to warn against Judaizers and antinomians, and to commend Timothy and Epaphroditus to them. Chapter 1 gives us Paul's ambition and his joy, because for him to die is gain and to live Christ. That's exactly how it reads in the original In chapter 2, he urges his readers, which includes us, to unity and courage and humility and humbleness or harmony. He calls us to have the same attitude as Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul calls them again to rejoice in the Lord. In verse 2, he warns against the legalistic Judaizers. In verse 3, he defines who the circumcision truly are. And then in verses 4 to 14, he urges them and us to follow his example of knowing Christ in verses 7 to 10 and pursuing Christ's likeness in verses 10 to 14. He says in in verse 17, literally, brothers and sisters, join in following my example. So that's our exhortation today, that we may know him. Let's look to Paul's example and follow the example it said, not just that we know the steps and the process and all of that, But that we might truly know the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ called us to live disciples' lives. But is the disciples' life merely a life of Bible reading and prayer, church attendance, hymn singing, sermon listening? Is it simply a one day a week life of religious observance? Is it that? Or is the life we're called to something far greater? Paul's life and ministry bears witness to it. The call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is a call to an intimate, joy-filled relationship with a living, loving, gracious person. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, Jesus called the 12 disciples, first and foremost, to be with him, then to preach and cast out demons. In Mark 8, 34 to 35, Jesus gave the condition for radical discipleship as this, if anyone would come after me. And he doesn't simply mean for us to imitate him. No, Jesus' call to discipleship is a call to know him, to walk and live with him, to be with him, to learn from him, to be like him, to be little Christs. It's a call that produces and increases Christ-likeness. My dad used to warn me, son, you become like those you spend time with. In my particular case at that time, it was men that I should not be spending time with. But it was. Being like Jesus requires us to deny ourselves, which Paul demonstrates. Being like Jesus means following him wherever he leads. But the end goal of it all is not only to be like Jesus. The goal is to know Jesus and to love him. Brother and sister in Christ, is that your experience this morning? As we finish off 2023 and move into 2024, what's, what's the state of your heart before God? Do you truly know the Lord? Or do you know lots about Him? I've I used this illustration a number of times too, but i use it again because it makes the point easily. When I was growing up, I used to listen to an, an Irish. Uh, rock and roll band called U2. And uh, yeah, some of you are smiling. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, I was a typical teenage kid listening to a rock and roll band. I, I bought the magazines. I bought the albums. I had the posters. Uh, I would have cut my hair that way, but my dad would never let me do that. So that didn't happen. And uh, I knew so much. He said, who's Paul Houston?" Oh, that's Bono. Well, who's this other guy? Oh, well, what's this? And where'd they come from? What school did they go to? I got answer question after question after question about those guys Like nothing else. He said to me, Do you know who U2 is? Oh, I know U2. If you ask the guitar player or the bass player or the drummer or the singer, who's Nelson Atwood? They go, Who? Never heard of me. You see, I knew a lot about them, but I didn't know them. And that's the fear I have for some of us. We know so much about Christianity and so much about the Bible, but do we know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we know him that intimate, deep way like a husband and a wife? Paul himself was a living in response to that discipleship call that the Lord had given. He had denied himself. He'd given up every fleshly confidence. He'd taken up his cross daily, suffering the loss of everything, dying to sin, self, and the world, and all for the sake of following and of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. He was following Christ. Wherever Christ led, he went. Wherever Christ called him, he whatever he called him to, he submitted. And Paul has called us to imitate him as Uh, He imitated Christ. So from his life, we can see what it means to know the Lord. We've been singing lots of praise and worship to the Lord. But, brothers and sisters, is the Lord glorified by us as much by our merely singing praises to him or about knowing the one that we're singing praises to? It's like when you invite a family over for dinner. And your wife makes a lovely dinner and the, and the guests are all very politely thank her for her lovely meal. And my wife makes some great meals. It's a whole lot different when I turn around and say, "Lord, sweetheart, that was an amazing meal. She's much more honored by that because I know her and she knows me. So, Paul gives us from our text... Four things about knowing Christ that I want us to consider this morning. First, the cost of knowing Christ. Second, the value of knowing Christ. Third, the means of knowing Christ. And fourthly, the desire for knowing Christ. First of all, the cost of knowing Christ. There's a cost to be paid in knowing Christ. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about cost in terms of salvation. Our salvation was fully bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. We cannot earn it or pay for it. We cannot purchase our salvation by enduring any amount of suffering or persecution or loss. That's impossible. But there is a cost to knowing Christ intimately. Any two people can get married and say that they're within a marriage relationship. But a deep, intimate relationship within marriage costs something. To know Christ intimately and deeply will cost you and I something cost us everything. Let's see the price that Paul was willing to pay to know Christ, and we can see it in verses 4 to 8. In Philippians 3, 4 to 8, Paul gives a list of reasons to have confidence in his flesh, his grounds for personal boasting, and he rejects all of them. In verse 4, he said he has law-keeping parents who circumcised him on the eighth day. In verse 4, again, he was a physical participant in God's covenants. He was circumcised. In verse 5, he was of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, tracing pure lineage all the way back to Isaac. He was a Pharisee, set apart to radical law-keeping. In verse 6, he was zealous for God, not merely a cultural Jew. He was determined in zeal to persecute the church because he believed it was acting against what God had said. From other texts, we know that Paul was a Roman citizen. He was trained and schooled under a respected man named Gamaliel. Paul had everything a young Jewish Roman man could ask or want in his day and age. He had the respect of men much older and much more established in Judaism than himself. If you look at Paul's attitude towards it all, in verse 7, I count these things loss. He realized that they did more harm than good. In verse 8, he says, I count all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ. He regarded knowing Christ of far greater value than all those privileges and accomplishments. And so he gave them all up, left them all behind. In verse 8, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things to gain Christ. I count all things. and, And Chris was very careful in his choice of wordage human refuse that's what the word means in the original to gain Christ we know that Paul lost everything to follow the Lord Jesus he lost his place and participation among the Jews and the Pharisees they never accepted sorry i shouldn't say that very few of them accepted his view of Jesus as the Christ They did not accept his view of Jew and Gentile as members of God's one household. We know Paul was hated and persecuted and stoned and beaten. We know he was imprisoned and ultimately beheaded for his faith in Christ. But to Paul, those losses were nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. So what what does Paul mean by knowing Christ Jesus as Lord? He terms it in three ways. Notice in verse 8 he says, to gain Christ. What's he mean? To actually acquire? No, what he means is to have more of Christ. In verse 9, he says, to be found in him. It's a mutual possession. He is in Christ, and Christ is in him. In verse 10, he talks about that I may know him, and he's talking about an ever-increasing experience. It's a knowledge that comes from experiencing of walking with Christ. It's not just head knowledge for Paul. And we know, you read his writings, one of the most brilliant theologians ever to live penning the books of Romans and Galatians. Some would argue he penned Hebrews as well. Rich books, the most succinct, careful, well-laid-out, prepared document explaining the gospel of Christ is the book of Romans. Paul wrote all those things, but it wasn't just head knowledge for him. And brothers and sisters, i got to say it, we live in a theologically rich environment, don't we? We have so many books, so many theologies. There's uh, podcasts, vlogs blog posts, Facebook, you name it. You can get access to condensed, summarized, rich theology a hundred different ways in our life. And for a lot of us, we've got it all stacked up. And and for some of us, it's all about carefully making sure all of the lines of our theology are exactly worked out. We can argue every argument and we can land on the right side all the time. It's all about that. But beloved, it's not all about that. For Paul, it was the experience of walking with the Lord. It's knowledge that comes from experience of walking with Christ. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul brings, sorry, not Paul, God brings an indictment against the people of Judah. This is what he says, the ox knows its owner, meaning his voice, The donkey knows its master's manger, its feed trough, but my people do not know me. And the know there in the Hebrew is the idea of knowledge by experience. What Paul wanted was to know Jesus Christ deeply by the experience of walking with Christ. It's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, come to me, take my yoke and learn from me. We've talked about this voice, this verse before. What Jesus has in mind is a yoke that goes across two oxen's shoulders. And the two oxen have to work and walk in perfect step with one another. If one lunges ahead while the other one backs up, they are all get all cockeyed and messed up. And if one tries to lurk, turn left, the other one goes straight, one stumbles and falls. They have to work together. They have to walk in sync that's what Christ is calling us to, is to learn from Him as we walk with Him. It's a daily walking beside our Lord Jesus Christ. It's daily hearing His voice. It's daily sharing His burden, His journey, His suffering. We learn from Him and we know Him. Brothers and sisters, the call to follow Him as His disciples is costly. Have you ever heard the gospel preach something like this? Come and believe in Jesus and your life will be so much more wonderful. Turn around and walk away. That man does not know what he's talking about. It's a bill of goods. Jesus said, come to me, take my yoke. It's a life of discipleship, a life of learning. It's a life of sharing his burden, his journey, his suffering. The call to follow him as his disciples is costly. It's a call to leave behind all our privileges and accomplishments, anything we might trust in to gain favor with God. It's a call to abandon our self-sufficiency and trust Christ. It's a call to follow him, whether or not our family and friends join us. And in every family, tragedy is that there will be some that will not that will say, no, that's too much. I can't go there. One of the heart-wrenching things for a pastor is to hear back years later that certain people he knew in churches previous no longer go to church, no longer walk with the Lord and have renounced their faith and live like the pagan. I had a difficult phone call yesterday about one that's done just that. It's a call to come and be with Christ. It's a cost. It's a cost of following Him. It's everything. But it's not a drudgery. It's not a misery. Which brings us to the next point, the value of knowing Christ. There is a value in knowing Christ, and that value is joy infinitely greater than the cost. You say, what's joy? I walked around my backyard yet cleaning up for having some people over tonight for New Year's Eve, and I was cleaning up trying to make my... My horrible backyard looked nice and neat and clean, and uh, to impress the visitors, now they know. What's joy? I started thinking around, what is joy? It's that deep sense of pleasure and overflowing satisfaction and delight in the source of our joy, which in this case is Christ. And I would argue the only source of lasting joy and fullness of joy is indeed Christ, He called them in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. He means to take and find our pleasure in the Lord, to delight ourselves in Him and Him alone, to be immensely satisfied in the Lord. If you were to compare it like a stream or water, if if happiness is a tiny, strickling stream of water, you can easily stop or redirect, then by comparison, joy is a deep, Wide, powerful river that you could not stop if you tried. That's the difference. Remember back to Jesus' words in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He doesn't look at the treasure and go, oh, great. I've just found this priceless jewel. Now I've got to give up everything to get it. No, 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 no. He finds the jewel and he thinks, I've got to have it. And so he hides it again. He goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field to get the jewel. Again, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus continues, is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. and finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. It is out of joy that the man sells everything. He pays the cost of everything he has to buy the field, to get the gospel, so that he might have Christ. The richest treasure of the gospel is Christ. For Paul, in Philippians 3, it was the surpassing excellency, to quote the King James, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The joy Paul had from knowing Christ could not be compared to the gain, the confidence, the happiness that all his worldly benefits could give. The value of knowing Christ is greater than all the treasures of all the world they cannot purchase, even a moment of eternal life in Christ. The value of knowing Christ is greater than all the combined wisdom and knowledge of all of eternity, of all the ages, because to know Christ is eternal life. The value of knowing Christ is greater than all the combined pleasures that all of mankind could ever dream up because they will ultimately fade and end. And Psalm 16 tells us that in the presence of God, there is pleasures forevermore. That's the joy of knowing Christ. That's the value of knowing Christ. Paul said all those other things are like rubbish, like garbage, like Jeremiah's ruined linen cloth in comparison to knowing Christ. Covenant inclusion, that's nothing compared to knowing Christ. Perfect, untainted, Jewish parentage, who cares? I know Christ. That was his attitude. And brothers and sisters, how much do we value, never mind you, how much do I value the experiential knowledge of Christ? so that when the way gets hard and the light gets a little bit dim and it begins to be more of a grind, do I value that experience with my Lord, knowing that every step of the way I go through those difficult circumstances, He is with me all the way. And not only am I going through those circumstances with Him, I'm learning from Him, I'm learning about Him, I'm learning Him as we go through them together. How much do we value the experiential knowledge of Christ? How much do we value what our daily walk teaches about, teaches us about him? So that we can live in praise of him. So we can love him more and cherish him more. Like any relationship. It's an investment of time and effort. Like any relationship, it's work and it's costly. But unlike every other relationship, it has eternal value. It is a value of lasting joy. Brother and sister in Christ, do you know the Lord? My friends sitting here, do you know the Lord? So there's a cost to knowing Christ. It costs Paul Everything. There's a value to knowing Christ. It's an infinite joy in Christ. And thirdly, there's a means to knowing Christ. We started by saying or describing discipleship as a call into a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God Himself. How can there be such a relationship with God? He is utterly God-centered and therefore perfectly loves. He is holy and righteous and sinless and pure. He is perfectly obedient to his Father's word and will. But all of us, we're all willfully disobeying his Father's words and will. We are utterly self-centered and fail to love God or man. We're sinful, unholy, self-righteous, and displeasing to God. Our self-righteousness, like Paul's reasons for confidence that he gives there, are as filthy rags to God. The simple answer is we cannot please God, and we can have no relationship with him as things are. But notice what Paul says. He says he wants to be found in Christ, having a relationship, having a righteousness that's from God based on faith in God. Our self-righteousness, our good works, cannot bring Paul nor us to God. His reasons for self-confidence cannot be pleasing to God. There's no relationship based on our good works or our self-righteousness. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is And that he rewards those who diligently seek him. The means to knowing God is faith in God. Faith in God brings a simultaneous exchange whereby we are given Christ's righteousness for our own as we lay our sin on him. We come to know God by trusting in God. Faith is to throw ourselves fully on God as our only means of life and righteousness, and hope, and joy, and peace. Faith in God, you say, what's that look like? Faith in God is like swinging swinging from one side of a chasm to the other on a rope. We let go of everything on our side, and we hang on with a grip of death to Christ, knowing that he holds us with an even greater grip, and we move from one side to the other, but we got to let go. Paul let go of all of his reasons of self-confidence. He let go of his sin and trusted in Christ to save him. Paul abandoned all his self-confidence and self-righteousness and clung to Christ and him alone. What's your hope this morning? Christ alone. That's the only hope you have. When you stand before God and he asks you why he should let you into heaven... You have one answer available, Christ and Christ alone. He died for me. He washed me. He forgave me. I am one of his children, one of God's children. That's my hope. If we walk up and say, well, you know, uh, my parents were uh, brethren back six generations, the angel will say, well, you know, I, uh, I read my Bible every day, my whole of my life. Good on you. Well, you know, I served the Lord. I, I went to mission fields. I even went and did youth camp. I worked in the creche. Man, now we're talking heavy stuff. And God will say, so it's not about all the things we do. It's about trusting in Christ as we know him, to know him. But you know, it's not just salvation by faith there. This whole life of the Christian life, it's not a life that begins with faith and finishes with works. It's a life lived by faith. The whole of the life is exercised by faith. By faith, we come to know Christ initially. By faith, we deepen our knowledge of Christ. We trust him as he takes us through the circumstances of life. We trust him as we obey him, like swinging through the midair from heaven to earth or earth to heaven. Each circumstance we walk through with Christ beside us deepens our knowledge of, of Him and our faith in Him. You say, how, how does that work with Bible reading? If you open your Bible and think, today I've got to read these four chapters. Right, here we go. All the way through Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Luke, Peter, done. And finish and close your Bible. God, we to something else. No, you missed it. You missed the point entirely. We open the scriptures and we listen as God begins to speak. We trust him as we open and read that he will speak as we read. We go to prayer. My prayer usually begins with, Lord, lead me in prayer. Teach me how to pray. Teach me to lead me as I lead the congregation in prayer. And by faith, we step out. We begin to speak to God in prayer and the things happen. The thoughts begin to flow. God responds, we grow in we grow in our knowledge of Christ by faith in him and obedience to him. Remember Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3, the ox and the donkey? The, Isaiah wrote this and he says, The ox knows his master, his voice his habits, his mood, his work, his walking. From months, then years of hearing the master's voice, the ox knows his master's voice by experience. From occasionally feeling the master's whip in discipline, the ox knows his master by painful experience. From daily being in the fields and farmyard and barnyard, the ox knows his master's life and labor by experience. The donkey knows its owner's manger, The donkey feeds there every single day. He knows when he goes to that box and sticks his head down to take a bite, there's going to be food there. In a certain sense, the donkey teaches us a lot about faith, doesn't it? He puts his head down knowing there's going to be food there. And if he's like anything like our dog, our dog, you know, he knows dinner time. She knows dinner time is exactly six o'clock. And so at about 515, she starts to remind me. Stands in front of my chair where I'm studying and yowls at me. Come and get me dinner. Because she knows if she comes and yowls, she's going to get fed. Sometimes it's persistence, but she gets fed. But there's a faith there, isn't it? They they come knowing that the donkey knows where the food is and how to get it. The donkey has come to trust that whatever the master puts into the feed trough is for his good and better. Greater service for the master. The ox trusts and knows his owner. The donkey trusts and knows his masters. Brother and sister, are we growing in our knowledge of Christ Jesus? Do we listen to his his voice? Do we obey his commands? Do we feed on him from his word? That's how we grow. You say, how do you... I remember watching across uh, when I was a kid growing up and... And uh, this older couple, Steve and Myra Biggs would come over. They were, they were really old. They were like in their 70s. It was, man, when you're a young guy, 70 is old. And they'd sit across, and we all had, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends. And, and you know, you young guy, you've always got your eye on a pretty girl. And uh, I used to look across at them, and this old couple, you know, he was always in a suit and tie. I, every, he I went to the beach in a suit and tie, no joke. And he sat beside Myra and he used to put his hand down and she put her hand down and they would sit there and hold hands on the couch. I mean, in their 70s for crying out loud. And they're still in love. Deep, deep, intimate love relationship. It didn't happen overnight. It happened every single day, living together, working together, walking together, crying together, praying together. Being together as a couple, we grow in our knowledge of the Lord as a time we spend in their presence, listening to their voice, his voice, reading his word, and obeying as he speaks to us. Brothers and sisters, do we know him deeper and deeper by trusting him through every experience of life? There is an immense value in knowing Christ Jesus, said Lord, it is the infinite joy in God and with God. There is an immense cost to pay in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. It's everything. There is the means to knowing Christ Jesus, faith. But finally, one last thing. Is there in our lives a desire to know Christ? Notice what Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may be conformed to his death. Know him his resurrection his sufferings and his death they're not four consecutive things rather it's one thing unpacked and explained by the other three his overarching desire is to know christ you can sense that longing in paul's words to know christ and you got to stop and think about this man for a second he's already lived for years Walking with and serving and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter how far he'd grown in his walk and his knowledge of Christ, he was still desiring more. It's a holy, H-O-L-Y, dissatisfaction in God that is just craving more of God. It's like, I was trying to think of a great way to, to illustrate this. It's like having tasted the sweetest, smoothest, finest chocolate. It simultaneously satisfies and produces an instantaneous craving for more. That's what knowing the Lord is like. It satisfies our soul, but we just keep coming back for more. Paul desires to know the power of his resurrection Meaning, he wants to know and experience new life in Christ. He wants to live the new life in Christ. Listen, Christ didn't suffer and die to give us eternal life after we die. To use the corny old American saying, it's not uh, pie in the sky when you die, it's steak on the plate while you wait. And it's true. It isn't just the ending, it's the whole life we live. That's life eternal. Christ came to give us eternal life starting right now. Christ calls us to follow him by faith in him, to walk as his disciples, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him, to joyfully walk in the newness of his life. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. All things are made new. New creatures live in newness of life. New creatures don't go back to living the way they once did. In Romans 6 and verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptized into Christ is to live as Christians, live as Christ's, little Christ's. Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The new self is put on. Don't walk and live like the old. I come home from work, working in construction years ago. And some of the places we worked in, Vancouver, it rained constantly. and means we were always mucking around in the muck doing stuff outside, getting wet and dirty. I come home, I take off all my dirty outside clothes, my working clothes, and I get a shower and, I, and everything cleaned up and I put on my suit and tie. I don't walk back out and stomp around in the mud at the construction site because I've put off that old thing. I've got on the new now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are in Christ, we have put on the new self. Stop living in the old self. That's what Paul's calling us to. The desire is to live the new life. Paul desires to know Christ and in knowing him to live the new resurrection life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Knowing Jesus Christ is to live in the power of his resurrection. Knowing Christ Jesus is to live the new life in him. And his desire and his purpose is to know him. You can just see it. It comes out of the text. That I may know him. (coughs) He's grasped something of who Christ is, and he's just got a craving for more. Secondly, Paul desires to share in the sufferings of Christ. To know Christ is the heights of joy, to experience the heights of joy. To know Christ is also to share in his sufferings. He said, why? Why that? How can we possibly be joyful, living life in the power of the Holy Spirit, living the new life and suffering? Doesn't make sense, does it, to our Western way of thinking. Why share in that? And the answer is because in sharing Christ's sufferings, we are displaying to a whole new set of viewers the love of God that purchased our salvation. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 24, Now I rejoiced in my sufferings. Did you get that? We read the Bible too quickly. Let's read again slowly like Chris did. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Get that? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What does he mean? He does not mean that Christ's sufferings were insufficient he means that he is suffering to display Christ's sufferings to those who couldn't have been there to see Christ themselves. Paul's sufferings, our sufferings, are to mirror and to reflect in visible form to a new audience the love of God displayed in Christ. In our sufferings for Christ and the gospel, they see a reflection of what Christ has suffered. He says in Philippians 1.29, I had somebody haul me up one day, uh, a friend back in Canada, and got very angry because I was talking about suffering as a Christian. Uh, he had bought into a prosperity way of thinking. Didn't like the idea that Christians are called to suffer. He says, the Bible doesn't anywhere tell us that we ha- we're called to suffer. I said, actually, the Bible tells us it's a gift. What? He just about drove off the road in his beautiful BMW. He said, this is what the Bible says, Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted, given, a gift, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That's what we're called to. And Paul says, look, listen to what he says. It's uh, in verse 10. Actually, let's read back and in, in, uh, from verse nine. He says, "And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith." Verse ten: "That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death." His desire is to experience the sufferings of Christ. I think most of us would say, you know, if it's necessary, we'll go through it. No, he went beyond that. He said, my desire, that I may know. That's a longing. It's a subjunctive verb, which as I understand it, has the idea of possibility. He longed to know Christ, to know the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. But let's not get sidetracked in that. That's not the main focus for this morning. Paul's desire that I may know him and knowing him is both living the new resurrection life in Christ and sharing in Christ's sufferings. Listen, knowing Christ is not merely watching as Christ raises the dead or merely handing out food to the thousands as, Paul, as he fed them. The disciples did this. It's not merely knowing him on Mount of Transfiguration. It's also in Gethsemane's garden joining him hope you catch what I'm trying to say. It isn't just all the fun things that the disciples got to do. And I'm sure as they watched him, they must have thought, wow, it's so cool. Where would with Jesus. He's the Messiah. Look at him raising the dead. Look at him. Walks out in the ocean and the, the waves and says, Shh, and the waves are still. Wow, so cool to be here. <laughs> we got in with a good crowd. Look where we are. The three up on the Mount Transfiguration, they watched as the heavens were open that sense, and they saw Jesus in all of his glory. Look where we are, man. Well, oh, this is so cool. And they got to follow him. And all of a sudden, he went to the garden of Gethsemane. And I'm sure that some of them, as they sat a little distance away, heard at least in part his prayer. It isn't just the high points, it's also in Gethsemane's garden, joining him. It's stepping forward like Simon and shouldering his cross to carry it beside him. It's walking the Via Dolorosa with him. It's surrendering to the will of God, meaning painful death sometimes. Knowing Christ for Paul and us is sharing in his sufferings, and I won't deny it. It scares me beyond imagining. And I hope and pray. May God grant to us all not only the grace to endure the sufferings, but the desire to know Christ by sharing in his sufferings. Paul longed to know Christ to this extent. You know, the psalmists in the Old Testament joined with Paul in the same desire. In Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, this is what the psalmist wrote. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is that the desire of your heart? Is there a desire so deep within you that craves to know Christ? In Psalm 73 verses 25 and 26, the psalmist says, "Whom have I in heaven but you?" And besides you, listen, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that you desire? Psalm one hundred and forty-three, in verse six, the psalmist writes, "I stretched out my hands to you; my soul longs for you as a parched land." Paul longed to know Christ. He longed to know him in sharing his sufferings. He longed to know him in the power of his resurrection, living the new life in Christ. Paul counted and considered and suffered the loss of all things gladly. He says he treats them like rubbish. You ever walk past a rubbish can? It's got an old chicken carcass in there for a couple of days, sitting there in the sun, nice and warm, and you know, such a, the air is shimmering from the smell coming off of it. Nobody goes, "Oh, just you know, just take another little bite of the chicken carcass." No, you're like, oh, "Get rid of it." That's how Paul treated all those privileges and accomplishments he had. He treated them like garbage. Paul counted and considered and suffered the loss of all things gladly for the sake and the joy of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Brothers and sisters, do we have that same longing? I plead with you to go before the Lord and to drink deeply of Christ because as you do, that longing will begin to revive. And the more you taste of him... And the more you enjoy of Him, the deeper that longing will become until everything else just becomes totally pointless and worthless and you just push it away. Listen, as we stand on the doorstep of 2024, my question to you is, do you know Christ Jesus as Lord? Are you longing to know more for Him? I hope and I pray this year coming up, we have some plans as far as the messages, the series I'm thinking about on living this Christian life. I hope and I pray as we begin to work through that, what it means to live the Christian life that you will have within each, of, within each we will all together know that deeper longing to know Christ and know him more intimately. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll, we'll be done for the morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, again we come before you and we give thanks to you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that it's because of him that we can even know you to begin with. And Father, as we have considered something of Paul's life and something of his desire to know you, Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God in heaven, for every single one of us, O God, do a work in us. Father, I pray that you would create in us a holy dissatisfaction in all the trinkets that the world has to offer and a deeper, sweeter, greater longing for Christ. Father, I pray that we would not, as a people, get caught up in all the junk that the world finds so attractive. Father, I pray that for us to know Christ Is sweeter than it all. Loving Father, do a work. I plead with you, O God. Father, for those standing here before me this morning and perhaps even watching on the video who have never trusted in Christ as Savior, they cannot know deeply the one in whom they have never met and one in whom they've never trusted. And so, Father, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would work in their lives to open their eyes to see the the beauty of of who Jesus is to see the the ugliness and the horror of their sin and to know that without Christ they face a lost eternity. Father, I plead with you to do the work that only you can do in each and all of us. Father, we give thanks again for the year that's gone before and, Father, all the, the many blessings that we have enjoyed from your hand. Father, again we return thanks. And Father, as we stand and look now towards a new year, if the Lord Jesus Christ be not come, and Father, we pray that he would come soon. Father, we pray that this year we would all strive to grow in our knowledge, to grow in our understanding, but to grow in our experience of the Lord. Father, I pray that this year ahead would be a year for us where theology and Bible would not just be head knowledge, but it would be heart knowledge that has calluses on hands and feet. Father, I pray that there would be a work done in this church, starting with the leadership and working your way out. Father, I plead with you for these things. And we ask them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.